0: I'm feeling a little bit tired, but it's okay. Um, We did have a really, really wonderful weekend. And uh, it's lovely to see Luke here. Uh, Well done for making it Luke. Um, Oh, and Ebby as well. Good to see you, Ebby as well. Um, And uh, uh, I'll be honest, we didn't have any first-time commitments to faith. But one of Mike's great gifts is uh, leading uh, people in prayer ministry. And uh, I've been to several cloveleys and several camps... And we always have uh, ministry at Camp and Cloverly. Um, But uh, last night, we had kind of an extended time for worship and ministry. And it was just beautiful how um, uh, Mike very normally, very naturally, um, without the hype, just used his gifts of ministry to lead people into God's presence. And um, we had a feedback session uh, this morning. And um, one, of the, one of the young people mentioned about how There were lots of people crying last night, and that was a bit odd for them to see that. And the reason there were lots of people crying was because it was a lot of pain coming out. We're talking about healing today, and it was a lot of healing taking place, a lot of emotional healing. Young people actually have uh, broken lives in many cases. um, And one of the great things about Jesus is he likes to heal people. Um, And that's what we saw this weekend. It wasn't just in uh, the ministry throughout the weekend, but it was also in the worship as well. We had a guy called uh, Tom Smith lead worship for us, who is uh, Mike Plovacci's intern at uh, Soul Survivor Watford, uh, Mike's church in Watford. And uh, he just is really gifted at leading spirit-filled, spirit-led worship. Again, leading us into God's presence and allowing us rest there. So it was a beautiful, beautiful weekend. Um, I am a bit tired, as I say, so you're going to have to put up with me a little bit tonight. But there we are. It's good to be here. And as we begin, I've got a little bit of an exercise for you. So I hope you're feeling excited for that. And I want you to imagine that you're in a lift. And this lift is going up to the top of a very high skyscraper. And uh, you're in this lift in your smart suit. You've got a black, shiny shoes on. Ladies, you've got uh, really pointy and really high, high heels on. You look your best. And you're panicking. You're thinking to yourself, please, may it be okay. Please, may it be okay. It's going to be alright. It's going to be okay. It's fine. And you get to the top and you wipe the sweat off your hands and you shake the hand of a person who greets you. And somehow... You have no idea how. Somehow you've managed to get an interview for your dream job. This next hour could change your life. And you sit down, you get the small talk over and done with, and the interviewer's first question to you is So, why should we hire you? And you've got twenty seconds, and I want you to pair up. One of you is the interviewer, the other is the candidate. And uh, candidates, you've got 20 seconds to answer that question and then I want you to switch over so interviewers, you are now candidates and candidates, you are now interviewers. Ready? Go. Why should we hire you? Alright. So, I wonder how you found that. Is anybody going to be brave enough to share their answer? Here's the question. Anyone at all. Go on, then. Go on. Excellent. Very good. I'm impressed. Good. Good. Well, uh, I hope you enjoyed that little exercise to begin with. Um, And in interviews, one of the things interviewers are often looking for is a bit of self-awareness. So uh, they want to know that you know your strengths, but that you also know your weaknesses. And the thing is, we live in a culture where humility is actually neither expected, more often than not, or respected. You only have to look at programs for the apprentice to see that. But what we see in the passage we're looking at tonight is noteworthy integrity and humility. And where integrity and humility are involved, Jesus takes notice. So if you could turn to that passage, that would be brilliant tonight. Um, we're looking at uh, Luke chapter 7, verses 1 to 17. Luke 7, 1 to 17. And uh, we're continuing our sermon series on the gospel of Luke. And uh, last week, uh, we looked at the fact Uh, Jesus was giving his sermon on the plain and Jesus urged the crowds around, around him to see themselves for who they really were, warts on all. He then encouraged the crowds to see other people around them, friends and enemies for who they were in the light of who you were. And he encouraged the crowds to allow Jesus to transform them into something more. And uh, today, Jesus has finished his sermon, and we have two different stories set in two different places. In both situations, uh, the, the circumstances are similar, and Jesus' reactions are similar as well. So that's what we're going to be taking a look at tonight. So Jesus has finished his sermon on the plain, and he comes down, and he enters a place called Capernaum. And as he enters Capernaum, some uh, Jewish elders desperately approach him, and they plead with him, "The Centurion servant is ill, and he's going to die. The Centurion has heard about you, and he believes that you can heal him. Please come with us. He deserves you. Do this for him. He loves our nation, and he's built our synagogue." Hmm. So the Centurion was probably a Roman. Uh, seconded uh, to serve with the forces of Herod Antipas, who was ruler of the area at the time. Normally, this centurion would be an enemy of the people he's speaking to. This centurion is a Roman, Gentile, and non-Jew. And and, uh, he has sent here some Jewish elders. So, firstly, even the fact that he's able to send some Jewish elders to Jesus suggests that there's some sort of good relationship here. Clearly, the Jews respect this Roman centurion, even though he's not one of them. Normally, this centurion should be the enemy. Secondly, and this is perhaps why he's not being viewed as the enemy. He says that the centurion has an affinity with Israel. It says that he loves our nation and that he built their synagogue. So, whether or not this centurion actually is a follower of the Jewish God, he clearly has some interest in the Jewish God. And for the Jewish elders, this merits Jesus' time and attention. The centurion loves the nation of Israel and he's helped build the synagogue and therefore Jesus should go with them and heal this centurion's servant. The centurion deserves it. Hmm, we might come back to that one. In the second story, uh, Jesus then goes to a town called Nain and it says that as he approaches the gate... A funeral procession is coming towards him. And at the front of this procession is uh, a woman who's been bereaved, followed by a coffin, which is probably more like a plank of wood with uh, a dead body lying on it, wrapped in like a shroud. And then behind the coffin is a crowd of people, uh, mourners. And it says that this was a large crowd from the town. And funerals back then would have been big occasions anyway, They had professional mourners, so people who were paid to be part of the funeral procession. But this was nevertheless a crowd bigger than most. And uh, the reason that this crowd is so large is because of what it meant for this child to die for this woman. So we read that her child has died, but she's also a widow. So now she's a woman, of course, And because of that, she had considerably less status in society anyway. She's childless, which means there's no one to provide for her or care for her as she gets older. And being a woman, she's unlikely to get any paid work. So the death of this child for this woman means a life of hardship. It means a life of loneliness and sorrow. And many from the town join this procession because they know the plight this, this woman now finds herself in. Going back to the first story, Jesus is on his way to this centurion's house uh, to heal the centurion's servant. The Jewish elders have said to Jesus, the centurion deserves to have you do this. And yet the fact is, none of us actually deserve the work of Jesus in our lives. To deserve something is to assume that we're entitled to something on the basis of who we are or what we've done. If it was possible to deserve the work of Jesus in our lives, then none of us would ever make it. We'd always fall short. Because we're human and we make mistakes. And Jesus, although he's human, he's perfect. And in fact, he's God. So there's going to constantly be this natural disconnect. We could never make it. If the centurion himself thinks that he deserves the work of God in his life or the work of God in his servant's life, then actually... That's pride, and that's another strike against his name. As Jesus gets closer to the centurion's house, some friends of the centurion come out to meet Jesus, and they have a message from the centurion. And they say, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. Does this centurion think that he deserves the work of God in his life? No, he doesn't. And in fact, he doesn't even consider himself worthy to meet Jesus face to face, let alone invite Jesus into his house. The centurion here is probably aware of the fact fact that to many Jewish people at the time, Jesus was a respected leader. There were those who didn't like Jesus, but there were certainly those who did. And uh, being Jewish, and the centurion being non-Jewish, Jews did not often go into Jewish houses. It was not seen as the right thing to do. It was seen to make them unclean. And so that when the centurion says he's not worthy to come into his house, there's perhaps a sense there of feeling unworthy himself. The fact is, this centurion knows that he does not deserve the work of God in his life. This centurion knows that if Jesus is going to do anything for him, anything for his servant, it has to be pure gift, pure grace, because of the love of God. The centurion knows he has no bargaining power. He can't earn anything from Jesus. He has nothing. So on the one hand, we've got these Jewish elders who seem to think it's possible to earn the favor of God in a person's life. And on the other hand, we've got uh, this centurion who knows that he can't earn Jesus' attention. And we've got a widow in distress and fear who has no idea what the future holds for her. Both the centurion and the widow know they have nothing to give. And if I was to ask us whether we saw ourselves more like uh, this group of Jewish elders or more like this centurion and the widow, I'm guessing that most of us would probably say, well, obviously, more like the widow and the centurion. Of course we are. The thing is, we live in a culture of entitlement. And it's a culture whereby we can end up having highly unrealistic expectations of what we are entitled to. And because it is part of the surrounding culture, sometimes we don't even realize that it forms part of the motivation for the decisions we make and the actions that we take. So although as a church we may want to say, no, of course, of course I don't have unrealistic expectations about what we're entitled to. I do wonder at times whether we struggle with that culture as much as other people in society around us. And the danger of this culture of entitlement is that we then place, or we can then end up placing, those same expectations on God just like these Jewish elders here, uh, the centurion deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. Jesus, I deserve that you heal me because I've been to church every Sunday for the last 50 years. Jesus, I deserve that uh, you give me a pay rise in my job because I give 10% of my income to the church and have done for the past 10 years. Jesus, I deserve that extra special holiday because of all that time I've given up to uh, visit my elderly grandparents for the past five years. The centurion and the widow know they have no bargaining power. They have nothing to give. So these friends of the centurion uh, meet Jesus. And uh, as Jesus is approaching the house, um, the centurion says to Jesus, Lord, don't trouble yourself, but I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and to that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this. And he does it. The passage continues. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. In the second story we're looking at, uh, Jesus sees this poor, bereaved woman with the funeral party. And in verse 13, it says, his heart went out to her and he said, Don't cry. This woman, this widow, and this centurion stand out to Jesus because of their integrity and their humility. They both know they have nothing to give. And because they know they have nothing to give, they also know that they can earn nothing. And so to them, it is this seemingly impossible situation. The centurion recognizes that Jesus is his only hope. This widow is so lost in her grief that that doesn't even cross her mind. And Jesus is drawn to both. Whether or not we find ourselves in a situation like this at the moment, it is true that all of us will face situations at some point in our lives where we feel we have nothing to give and we know we have nothing to give. And it's in those times that Jesus reaches out to us. He's not a God who is unfamiliar with pain and heartache, He's a God who wants to reach out to us through those times. At all times, but especially during those tough times in love and compassion. In these particular stories, it's Jesus' love and compassion for the widow and the centurion that leads to the healing of the centurion's servant and the raising to life of this boy again. I can't say that it will always be that way. At times, situations do end up in ways that we would not expect or in ways that we would not hope. But I can say that during those times, Jesus is very close to us. That Jesus does reach out to us in those times with abundant grace, abundant love, abundant compassion. But nevertheless there are times there are times when we will see the powerful hand of the lord in our lives we don't deserve it we cannot earn it but god comes to meet us by his grace because of his love as a pure gift and the centurion uh, or the centurion through his friends say to jesus say the word and my servant will be healed. As the centurion's friends return to the centurion's house, they find uh, the the servant fit and well again. In the second story, uh, uh, Jesus touches the body and says, young man, I say to you, get up. At this moment, the boy sits up and begins to speak. And Jesus hands the boy back to his mother, as if to say, I restore your life as well. As a side point, I find it quite funny that this little boy begins to talk, and I do wonder what his first words were, whether it was, Mom, give me a cup of tea, or put the dinner on, Mum," Who knows? But in both these situations, Jesus speaks words of life to situations that represent death. And through the Holy Spirit, Our words as well can bring life to situations that represent death. That may well be physical illness. It may be emotional pain. It might be situations of gossip and negativity in the workplace where our words of positivity literally bring about a change in the environment. Perhaps it could be a neighbor who just needs a word of encouragement so that they know that someone actually cares for them and that they mean something to someone. As we come to Jesus empty-handed, knowing that we have no bargaining power, Jesus is moved with compassion and he longs to bring about healing and wholeness in our lives. Shall we pray?